I don't remember what I did before. <laughs> but I liked it. Well. Uh, it's still on there. There you so go. I can... You can insert it. <laughs> yeah, I have permission. It's not a one-off. Uh, I don't know. I think you need to do one. I think I'll try and do like a weird kind of harmony with yours. <laughs> well, well, here was my... Uh, I'd love to hear how that sounds. And then if we like it, great. But if we're looking for other options, I feel like if we have one that's just you that plays at the beginning of your episodes, you know what I mean? That'd be funny. So you know who's hosting based on who's doing that. <laughs> but I need you to record that and I'd, I'll just go, this podcast doesn't exist. <laughs> that's right. You did a wow. There's, yeah, I don't know why that feels feels like a jingle. This podcast doesn't exist. That was what you did. <laughs> yeah, love it. We love it. Channeling our inner Uncle Jesse, Uncle Joey. Oh my gosh, Full, Full house. house. Speaking of house, housekeeping. We didn't even start. Oh, I thought we did. We haven't said our names or anything. I get yelled at for not giving a description. I'm sorry. That was just a really good segue. <laughs> segue. I'm Shannon. Segu. Oh, I'm Emma. <laughs> yes, and that Segu <laughs> takes us to this being, this podcast doesn't exist. Welcome. Whoop, whoop. We're best friends, which is why we fight all the time. <laughs> but it's never serious fighting. I don't think we've ever had like a drop down knockout fight and if we have i don't remember I mean, it i we've never you... gotten into a physical altercation oh i no but that's, that's not what... what i mean by that <laughs> okay that's usually what people do mean by that knock yeah. down drag out there we go that's what it was <laughs> knock out drag down is that what i said <laughs> <laughs> yeah you were you, saying something do you, else do you agree do you agree that we haven't had one of those we have never had a legitimate fight there have been some hurt feelings that were addressed. Oh, yeah. No, but that's like, that That to me doesn't, is it like a that, fight fight? Things that, that I think if they had not, like if the bringing up of the hurt feelings had not gone well, could have turned into a fight. But the other person has always been like, I Receptive, acknowledge your yeah. feelings. Or like, sorry, I didn't realize, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I like that apolo- apology is blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Well, I feel like it's situational. Yeah. I All that to say, we have never been in a serious fight. Yeah. But we fight all the time. <laughs> a lot of the times. On here. Yep. <laughs> You've heard the episodes where it gets a little quiet on one side of the mic. You know. <laughs> you know how some people like to just step on the setups of other people's jokes. Well, I don't know that they're setups to jokes. I'm uh, just listening. Then I just get mad at you <laughs> for reasons that you can't. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I'll unpack that with my therapist. <laughs> um, that other people don't get a copy of the script. And neither do you. That's why we have a bingo card so that you can follow along and listen to this episode and Check off all of the things that we might potentially say and might not say, because sometimes it ends up being that aliens don't pop up every time. Or like spies. Spies hasn't popped up in a while, but like, you never know. It might be there, but we don't know the script, you don't know the scripts. Well, I know the script. Well, that's true. 
I don't know the script. <laughs> either when I'm doing it or not. <laughs> That's not true. You you love your little notes. I do. My notes are very well organized. For, for somebody who is not the most organized person, my notes are very organized and I'm very proud of them. Thank you. Shannon gave me a thumbs up. <laughs> what a visual bit. <laughs> Better than that. Uh, where can they find the bingo card, Emma? They can find it at thispodcastdoesn'texist.com. Dot com. Yeah. And all of our social media is there. I'm uh, working on the YouTubes, us. you guys. You I'm can comment on things. Shout out to my mom who messaged us. She replied to one of our stories. Oh. Saying, I need to catch up. So, I don't know if you're starting from recent or not, but hi, mom. Thanks, Mama Karen. I appreciate you. (laughs) We both have Mama K's. (gasps) We do. I've never made that connection before. Well, because in my head, I just... Kim. I just call my mom, mom. (laughs) Oh, that's true. You Meanwhile, know. I call my mom Kim to her face. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Not always, but... Any other thoughts, feelings, opinions you'd like to share with the class before we Not in particular. Emily Dallas finally got her prize, which yes. I'm very happy about. Whoop, whoop. That it got to her. And Sarah Strunk will get hand-delivered her gift. The last couple Fridays, we haven't been able to have lunch <laughs> buddies because we see each other on campus, but... It's on my desk at work. Yep. She'll Lunch receive buddies. she will receive her her items as well. Uh bum bum. All right, are you ready? I think so. Are you ready for it? <laughs> I have no clue what we're doing today. I've given <laughs> I've been given no clues is what I mean well, to say. <laughs> up until three o'clock today, I didn't either. <laughs> We okay. put a lot of work into this podcast, you guys. We do. <laughs> like, just, genuinely a I've lot of work. I've really good at streamlining she the really process. really has. Because I... I'm so impressed right, by it. Because if I do work multiple days on research, I do it a lot more like, oh, I read this article, now I'm going to watch a little TikTok, then I'm going to go back. Yeah. But this, I just was, like, sitting down, and I was like... Yep. Doing it. I appreciate that. I cannot do that. I get too distracted too quickly. That's fair. All right. Well, so I went into my hunt for a topic Mm. with keeping in mind that the past few episodes have been, what what did we say? They're not spooky. They're just sad. Yes. Although Lars disappearing was a little spooky, I think. I would agree. What happened to him? Lars, are you listening? Don't know what we're talking about? Go back and listen. Also, write in, do you, if you are behind, if you have several episodes to listen to, do you start with the most recent episode or the most in the past episode? Yeah. Let us know. Do you, do you go backwards? Because we know a few people who do. (laughs) Sarah. Sarah. Without an H. I listen from oldest to newest because I myself have to catch up, my friends. I'm like four weeks behind on listening to our own podcast. Gotta bump those numbers up. I'm working on it. I'm sorry. I've been listening to a lot of audiobooks. So I wanted, keeping in mind that things have been a little heavy, a little sad, I wanted to kind of return to my roots. Mm -hmm. So I went into that search. Also this weekend, you all, uh, or like this past week, I reorganized the stewed. Yes, she did. Where we record. 
And in doing so, I, I was sorting out all my books. So Emma's laptop is currently a, atop the throne of Titanic books. The Mount Everest books are over here on the dresser. But then we have a miscellaneous pile. And some of those are topic specific, like our cursed objects, or there's one about the Lusitania. But then there are a couple that cover, they're more like a catch-all, like a printed BuzzFeed list almost. So I started browsing through a Life magazine publication from 2008. I think I must have gotten it either at a used bookstore or at like a Friends of the Library sale. And it's titled The Most Notorious Crimes in American History. It's full of like two to four page summaries of all these different crimes. And I did manage to find several topics. Perhaps I will revisit some of them in future episodes. That's so exciting. I added them to my topic ideas little group on, on Google Chrome. But today, I have a fun story to tell you. But first, because you know I love a lead up, Emma, mm-hmm. you're my best friend. Yes. You know me pretty well. I think so. What is one of my favorite tropes in all of TV and film? Oh, your favorite trope is when everyone comes together. Like you're get you're you're pulling the team together. So like Avengers, they're like, we're gonna go get this guy. We're gonna go get that guy. Like Ocean's Eleven style. Like, oh, yep, this is the dude that does this. We're gonna need him. You love that stuff because then they all like gather together and they've all got their own little thing to do. And then they like pull it off and they like win or whatever. That is your favorite thing. <laughs> You are correct. I wrote getting the band, parentheses, back together. And then I wrote the Fast and Furious franchise has entered the chat. <laughs> because that's they do it every single movie. It's like the... Like they assemble yeah. the team once and then... Well, like the first three movies, there are different teams. But from four onward, it's most of the same people. And they just reassemble. I love it. You are correct. Ding, ding, ding. You get... A metaphorical cookie. Yay! Best friend points. Thanks! Also, another thing that I love, which you sort of alluded to, I do love, in a book, TV, movie, whatever, I do love a good heist. There we go. Yes. You do. And I was actually listening to all of the Ocean's uh, movie soundtracks while I was working Oh! I, I knew. I and knew. now I really want to go watch one of those movies before I go to sleep today. Uh, so. Ocean's Eleven is just a chef's kiss. Like, but also just Ocean's a, Eight? Women! I Okay, I will say this. I watched it on a plane. Oh. So I was not really paying attention. Oh, that's true. You were not in your right mind. Yeah, I was not really paying attention. So <laughs> I, it's a movie that I do need to revisit because Sandy Bullock, I I'd be I happy love you. If Rihanna. Rihanna's I'd be happy in it. to visit, revisit um, it with you. Who else is Aqua, Aquafina's in that, right? I believe so, yes. Yes. And Aunt, I do remember Anne Hathaway being really good. Yeah. Shout out to you, Anne. Okay. Mia Not to be confused. <laughs> With Anne of Anne and Todd fame. <laughs> oh, yes. No, not my in-laws. <laughs> All right. So despite today's topic being named one of the, quote, most notorious crimes in American history, I had never heard of it, which, like, shame on my tri-state slash New England roots, I guess. It was, at the time, also called the crime of the century, and since then, quote, an almost perfect robbery. 
Oh no. Oh my gosh. So today I'm here to tell you the story of the Great Brinks robbery. I have no clue about this. Woo! That was nowhere what I did not know anything. Alright, well here we go. Alright. We only have a couple, like two bullets of background, which is a new record for me. If seriously. So, uh, founded in 1859 by Perry Brink of Chicago, Illinois, the Brinks Company is an American private security and protection company known today mainly for its armored trucks yes. that can often be seen outside banks and businesses. Okay, now I know where I've... because I recognize the name. Mm-hmm. Okay. They also have a branch that's like Brinks Home Security. Okay. Over time, Brink's business evolved from local armored transportation services to providing corporate financial logistics and international secure transportation. I totally wrote all of those words myself. (laughs) (laughs) Fun fact, according to the Wikipedia article page, a Brink's armored truck was once used to transport the Hope Diamond from auction to the home of a buyer, or so they claim. Which I was trying to think back to my research for that episode, and I was like, but McLean had it. I was going to say, no, that that can't be true. Cartier. Because they didn't start till 1959, right? No. 1859. Sorry. So sorry. But. The possibility is there now. Who knows? There's your past episode throwback, if you didn't already get Lars. Uh, So the Brinks Armored Car Depot of our story was located at the east corner of Prince Street and Commercial Street in the north end of Boston, Massachusetts. Boston. 165 Prince Street. The year was 1950. But first, we're going to talk about the plan. Ooh. Do-do-do-do-do-do. According to information later gleaned from a member of the party, I'm not going to spoil it for you. You won't get to know who snitches. The mastermind of the Brinks robbery was one Joseph Big Joe McGinnis. (laughs) Big Joe. Oh, there are a lot of names. Oh, I'm so excited for the nicknames. Anthony Pino and Stanley Gus Gassioria. Sure. So there's that's where we get Gus. I was going to say, where do you yeah. get Gus from Stanley? Well, Where I, do you get Greg from Stanley? I don't know. It's a lie. So these two dudes were also brought in on the early stages of the plan. Over a series of months? Weeks? Question mark? Unclear. Okay. <laughs> um, O'Keefe and uh, Gussioria, which doesn't feel right, but why would it be Gus if it's like, Gusioria, like... It might be Gusioria, but it's, like, Americanized to Gus. Gusioria. I don't know. We're Irish. We're not Italian. That's Sorry. Fair. But O'Keefe and Gusioria <laughs> <laughs> secretly entered the Brinks Depot. Secretly. Well, yeah, because you're not going to publicly... Because it's not like a bank. Like, you don't... It, oh, you as I a see. private I see. citizen yeah, yeah, don't yeah. have a reason to be going in here. They'd pick the outside lock with an ice pick and the inner door with a piece of plastic. They later temporarily removed the cylinders from five locks. One at a time, they would take them to a locksmith to get keys made, and then they would bring it back. And while they were gone, because it would be pretty obvious if, like, a whole, like, chunk of your 
fancy metal door was missing, they would put a different cylinder in so anyone walking by would, like, not catch on. So they got duplicate keys made. After this initial recon stage was completed, it was time for Anthony Pino to recruit the rest of the team. ruh And they, they included Vincent's brother-in-law, Vincent Costa, Michael Vincent Vinny, just Gagan, Thomas Sandy, Francis Richardson, Adolf H. Jazz, <laughs> Moffy, Henry Baker, James Ferretti, James Ferretti, and Joseph Banfield. I'm sorry. I can't get over Jazz. Jazz. <laughs> His name was Adolf, and they were like, no, we can't. I mean, we the, can't. yeah, they were like, we can't. Adolf H. No, what you'd go by Jazz too. <laughs> you'd be like, I gotta go. I have to. I need a new name. Like his mom had like fallen, like really loved this obscure German artist from like the early 1920s, and then had already named her kid by the time she was like, Oh no, I've made a mistake. Oh gosh. Um, if you didn't get that joke, <laughs> you don't know your you didn't world go history. <laughs> the history class in ninth grade. Uh, so Pino had the gang watch the depot for 18 months. Oh, this is such a long con. Truly. So they would they would watch, they would observe from like a building, like a rooftop across the street to find out when it would have the most money based on like when the trucks would come and go. He also studied schedules and was able to determine what the staff was doing based on when the lights in the building were on. Ooh. I mean, after 18 months of watching it, I would hope you'd figure out something. O'Keefe and Gusioria stole the plans for the site from an alarm company in Boston to study, to figure out, you know, where the alarms, past equivalent of the oceans people being like, all right, where are the lasers? Yeah. Like, <laughs> but then when they discovered that these plans weren't actually helpful... They returned to the alarm company and returned the plans all undetected. Nobody knew that the plans were missing. <laughs> so good. On numerous occasions, the gang members entered the building after the staff had left for the night to memorize the layout and practice their planned entrance and escape. Because they had those keys, remember? They could get in. So they were like running drills. This team would take two years total and six aborted attempts to meticulously plan, prepare for, and execute their heist. Oh my gosh. Finally, on January 17th, 1950, the squad decided it was time. Most of the team put on clothing similar to that of a Brinks uniform, which was navy pea coats and chauffeur's caps, they also brought along rubber Halloween masks, gloves, and rubber-soled shoes. This is... Okay, I, so far, this is the coolest thing. <laughs> <laughs> While Pino and the driver, Banfield, remained in the getaway truck, five to seven of the other men, reports differ, entered the building at 6.55 p.m., Using their copied keys and practice routes, they made it through three, maybe four, question mark, doors and up to the second floor of the depot. 
There, they surprised Brink's employees in the midst of their usual nightly count of the day's money. These five employees were bound, gagged, and left face down on the floor. Ow. And all of this was at gunpoint because... Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then I just... One of the main sources for this um, is a webpage on the literal FBI site. Mm -hmm. It goes very in-depth. So if you want more detail, you can go do that. You can also tell that it was like, we are just putting up the information. We do not have a graphic designer. Because the font is very small. (laughs) And very, like, the line breaks. It's, they could use a photo or two more than they already have. Break up some stuff. Yeah, they, Anyway. I just, this quote kind of tickled me. So, this is a quote from the FBI. Mm. During this operation, one of the employees had lost his glasses. They later could not be found on the Brinks premises. Oh, jinkies. Jinkies. I think based on reading more of the, like, testimony from the person who rats them all out, I think the glasses just fell off when they were, like, subduing the prisoners. Yeah. And then it got kind of scooped in with the money, which doesn't make sense to me unless that they, like, fell off the guy's face while he was, like, standing over the counting table or something. But he didn't have his glasses. Aww. Um, according to these witnesses, the employees, the robbers spoke very little, moving with a practice ease and a light step. Ooh. That must have been so scary. Yeah. Well, it also makes sense because I believe all of these men have some sort of criminal record already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they'd be smart enough not to be talking. Yeah. Because even also, if you're wearing a mask, people could like identify your voice. Yeah. And if your name is Jazz, like Jazz. you've you figured out by now. That <laughs> At least there are two Vinnies. Like, <laughs> Who are you talking to? I'm talking to you, Vinny. I'm not Vinny. That's Vinny. I'm Vinny. No, I'm Vinny. The Spider-Man. Yeah. <laughs> the Spider-Man meme. meme. The robber's carefully planned routine inside the Brinks building was interrupted only when the attendant in the adjoining Brinks garage sounded the buzzer, saying that he was trying to get in. Mm-hmm. Before the robbers could take him prisoner, the garage attendant walked away. So they figured that guy... When no one let him in, he was like, all right, whatever. bye. Although the attendant did not suspect that the robbery was taking place, this incident incident did cause them to move more quickly. Because they're like, well, maybe he is going to call someone. Yeah. Like, why he couldn't get in. So we got to hustle. All this, all this considered, the robbers walked out in under an hour. That's insane. They had taken money and four revolvers from the employees. They cleaned out everything except the general electric payroll because that payroll money was in like a special box and they hadn't brought any tools with them. So they like tried to take it, but they couldn't bust into it. So they just left it. That's surprising to me that they didn't bring tools. Well, I think they... They could anticipate when there would be the most money, but they couldn't necessarily anticipate where some of it where might be. it was coming from. Yeah. So that okay, that's fair. It took them only thirty-five minutes to load fourteen canvas bags with a half ton of cash, coins, checks, securities, and money orders. 
At 7.27 p.m., as the robbers sped from the scene, a Brinks employee who managed to get to, you know, work themselves free, telephoned the Boston Police Department. Minutes later, police arrived at the Brinks building and special agents at the FBI quickly joined in the investigation. Banfield drove the truck to the house of Moffie's parents in Roxbury. Roxbury? Roxbury. Roxbury. The loot was quickly unloaded and Banfield sped away to hide the truck. Gagan, who was on parole at the time, actually... <laughs> oh, no. Sorry. <laughs> What's so funny? No, it's just... You You had said before they definitely all probably had criminal records. And it's like, oh, yeah. you're on parole, dude. <laughs> because he was on parole, he actually got out of the truck before they made it to the Roxbury house. Because he wanted to be sure... He... <laughs> he was certain he would be considered a strong suspect, so he wanted to go establish an alibi, like, as quickly as possible. I mean, all right. So, smart thinking on his part. While the others stayed at the house to make a quick count of the money, uh, Pino and Faraday left. Approximately one and a half hours later, Banfield returned with McGinnis, who, right, is supposedly the mastermind of this whole plan, because he was not on the robbery with them. He was at his, the liquor store that he owned. Oh. So Banfield comes back with the boss. Before the group dispersed for the night, approximately $380,000 was placed in a coal hamper and removed by Baker for security reasons. Pino, Richardson, and Costa each took $20,000, which was noted on a score sheet. This team of seasoned criminals had just committed the largest U.S. cash heist to date, making off with over $1.2 million in cash and nearly $1.6 million in checks, money orders, and other securities. So much money. Which is now valued, all of that, valued today, $30 million. Holy crap! That's so much money! Yes. So that's, that's our heist. Hoy. And now we're on to the hunt. Ooh. Because the FBI got called in right away because that was a lot of money. Yeah. And then here is a long old quote from the FBI themselves because why not? Quote, in the hours immediately following the robbery, the underworld began to feel the heat of Ooh. the investigation. Someone in the FBI is having a great time writing this. Well-known Boston hoodlums were picked up and questioned by police. From Boston, the pressure quickly spread to other cities. Veteran criminals throughout the United States found their activities during mid-January the subject of official inquiry. A systematic check of current and past Brinks employees was undertaken. Personnel of the three-story building housing the Brinks offices were questioned. Inquiries were made concerning salesmen, messengers, and others who had been called at Brinks and might know its physical layout as well as its operational procedures. Which, for once, police, you seem to be doing the right things. Very yeah. smart. Because also, if you were trying to, if you had not broken in and created duplicate keys, posing as, like, a male boy. Yeah. Is total, like, I feel like I've seen that in several movies. Oh, yeah. Where it's like, oh, I'm just the male person 
checking on the layout of the da da da, swiping your car key or your like key card. Yeah. <laughs> Brink's customers were immediately contacted, one to like let you know that your money was stolen, but to gather as much information about any physical identifiers that they might have like oh yeah, yeah you know do you band your bills with like a certain color or do you mark your bills with anything this information along with any serial numbers that they had for the cash was shared with banking institutions across the country who put a stop protocol in place so if anyone tried to deposit that money it would be a red flag uh, brinks incorporated themselves offered a $100,000 reward for information. The only clues that police were initially able to find were the rope that the robbers had used to tie the employees, the adhesive tape used to gag them, and a chauffeur's cap. Someone left something behind. Right. But they don't have a ton to go on. No. There's this reward out. However, any information that the FBI did receive... Ranging from well-meaning citizens, you know, just reporting something that seemed weird to inmates in prison trying to say, like, oh, my new cellmate told me this and trying it's it's trying to get privileges. Yeah. Um, all of it really just proved useless. Like, none of the tips were helpful. And as with any FBI tip line... It slows the process down because you have to treat every lead as if it's real because, you know, it may be the one in 10,000 that, like, has a comment about John Bonet that's actually helpful. Yeah. But that slows you down. Yeah. And then I liked, I liked this quote as well. Of the hundreds of New England hoodlums contacted by FBI agents in the weeks immediately following the robbery, few were willing to be interviewed. <laughs> Oh, well, maybe if you stop calling them hoodlums, Debra. Um, Wait, was, was the person who wrote it named Debra? Oh, I have no idea. Oh. I think, I don't know. I, it's just the FBI. <laughs> the Federal Bureau of Investigation. I love that. On February 5th, 1950, so the robbery took place January 17th, it's February 5th, a police officer in Somerville, Massachusetts, uh, recovered one of the four revolvers that had been taken by the robbers. Ooh. The investigation established that this gun, along with another rusty revolver, which had been found on February 4th, so the day before, by a group of boys who were playing. <laughs> a group of boys had found another yeah. revolver, and it was determined uh, that they were both related to the robbery. On March 4th, a truck identical to the one reported to be seen near the Brinks building during the robbery was found cut to pieces Whoa. in a dump in Staunton, Staunton? Staunton, Staunton. Massachusetts, yeah. near O'Keefe's home. Uh-oh. You didn't drive far enough, buddy. He didn't drive it, though. Oh, that's right. One of the other ones did. The truck found at the dump had been reported stolen by a Ford dealer near Fenway Park in Boston on November 3rd of the previous year. The truck pieces were concealed in fiber bags when found. Had the ground not been frozen, the person or persons who abandoned the bags probably would have attempted to bury them. Uh-oh. Shouldn't have done it in January. Right in Boston. So silly. 
Uh, All attempts to locate those responsible for the theft and destruction of the vehicle were unsuccessful. (laughs) Though the discovery did put additional attention on the two robbery suspects who lived in the Staunton area. And that they were, you know, part of our crew. Yeah. In April of that year, FBI agents received information that some of the stolen money was hidden at 771 VFW Parkway in West Roxbury, home of Mary Hooley, who was the sister of suspect Joseph Specks O'Keefe. Oh. Agents searched Hooley's home and found several hundred dollars, but none of it could be chased back to the Brinks heist. Oh, so she's just hiding her own money, her own bills in between her mattress. But you know, they have to be. All right. Now we go on to the next section, which I've titled The Plot Thickens mm. slash The Field Narrows. Ooh. Because they're trying to narrow down their suspects. Yeah. They got a lot of criminals in Boston to choose from. <laughs> yeah. As we know from the... Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Anthony Pino became an early suspect in the case as the robbery apparently bore his trademark because he was a renowned case man. Oh, no. And he was really the one driving all of the reconnaissance of like, okay, we're going to go in. We're going to run it. We're going to do it again. He was questioned regarding his whereabouts on January 17th during the robbery. And he initially presented a seemingly solid alibi. According to him, he had been at his home in the Roxbury section of Boston until approximately 7 p.m. When then he walked to the nearby liquor store of Joseph McGinnis, where he held a conversation with McGinnis and a Boston police officer. Uh Uh-oh. Who later confirmed that the conversation did happen. According to the FBI, however, the police officer said he had been talking to McGinnis first and Pino arrived later to join them. The trip from the liquor store at Roxbury to the Brinks offices could be made in about 15 minutes. Pino could have been at McGinnis's liquor store shortly after 7.30 on the 17th and still participated in the robbery. So, mm-hmm. the respected reputations of both Pino and McGinnis within the criminal underground made their lack of knowledge about such a big job pretty unlikely. Like, if even if you didn't do it, you would know. You would know a guy who knows a guy. And their implied involvement also led investigators to put suspicion on certain other individuals who were known to be the best of the best in their specific, you know, the monkey, the whatever the terms are. Yeah. Of, like, because such a big job, you wouldn't go with, like, the third third. You wouldn't go with the rookie. Pick, right? Yeah. Like, you're, both of us are like, what are sports? Sports. Yeah. Right? But, like, you're going to go with the first round draft. You yeah. want the best of the best. So because of that, certain members of our team did have suspicion placed upon them because they were so well-known. Yeah, within the... That they're like, well, O'Keefe totally would have picked you. Yeah. On June 2nd, 1950, O'Keefe 
And uh, Gus, our buddy Gus, uh, left Boston by automobile for the alleged purpose of visiting the grave of Gus's brother in Missouri. On June 12th, however, they were arrested at Tawanda, Pennsylvania, and guns and clothing, which were the loot from burglaries at Kane and Cowdersport, Pennsylvania, were found in their possession. So they just couldn't, they couldn't just chill. Their fingers were too sticky. Yeah. Following their arrests, frequent but ultimately unsuccessful attempts to secure their release on bail were made. On September 8th, O'Keefe was sentenced to three years in the Bradford County Jail at Tawanda and fined $3,000 for violation of the Uniform Firearms Act. Although Gus was acquitted of the charges against him in Tawanda, he was removed to McKean County, Pennsylvania to stand trial for burglary, larceny, and receiving stolen goods. On October 11th, Gus was sentenced to serve from 5 to 20 years in the Western Pennsylvania Penitentiary at Pittsburgh. Both men had been interviewed on several occasions concerning the Brinks robbery, but they con- they claimed complete ignorance about any of the inner workings of the job. In the following years, rumors floated through the criminal underground of Boston that the two criminals were putting pressure on associates to cough up some cash to assist with their acquittals. According to the FBI, quote, the names of Pino McGinnis, Adolf Jazz Maffey, and Henry Baker were frequently mentioned in these rumors. And it was said that they had been with O'Keefe on, quote, the big job. In an attempt to capitalize on the physical distance placed between the possible co-conspirators, authorities visited the two inmates on multiple occasions. But the men continued to claim ignorance. All the while showing disrespect for the police from the comfort of their prison cells. (laughs) Which, like, I get it. If you're like, okay, we've kind of separated these two from the pack. These guys aren't sending the, you know, their buddies aren't sending the money to help them get out. They're going to be mad. Let's talk to them. (laughs) I'm just picturing these two dudes sitting in a cell being like, no. Screw you. (laughs) Screw you, buddy. Yeah, right. I love, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but in New England, a way to basically say, like, I don't like you, or, like, something like that, is to end a phrase with, like, buddy. Oh, yeah. Or start one with buddy. To be like, hey, buddy, like, we're not gonna, we're not gonna do this, okay? Oh, yeah. And you're like, whoa. Oh, yeah. All right. I've been around my father in traffic. Oh, yeah. Um, Meanwhile, that's what I call my little brother, like, lovingly. I call him buddy. Hey, buddy. Yes, okay. I you pulled a me! I understand what I wrote. No, I knew exactly where I was. I oh, just was trying mind. to de- decipher what I meant. Right, okay. Sometimes I write in the style of the articles I'm reading, so then what I'm reading sounds like a direct quote, but it's not. It's just me. Uh, okay. In pursuing the underground... I kept writing underworld instead of underground. The underworld... <laughs> Boston. We've got it's a gateway to hell. We've got James Hades <laughs> McGuff. We've got Persephone <laughs> DiMaggio. Big, Big P DiMaggio. Big P 
<laughs> We've got uh, Oedipus T-Rex. <laughs> Don't know. I'm getting I'm getting so far getting, away from it. That, no. Alright, we got we got go. Sisyphus, that's what I was trying to think. There, of. I was like, Oedipus is a different yeah, Greek situation. Yes. Sissy Sisyphus. <laughs> Only his friends get to call him that. <laughs> so just a really, really big dude. Same sissy. I sissy <laughs> Comes around the corner. Boom. 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 Oh you 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 met my boy Cerberus. <laughs> I don't know what accent I'm doing. I, I don't either, pre- but I really like it. I, I hope you appreciated this bit. Okay. I did. In pursuing the underground rumors. Uh, concerning the principal suspects in the Brinks case, the FBI succeeded in identifying more probable members of the gang. Adolf Jazz Maffey. Can't get over it. (laughs) One of the hoodlums who allegedly was being pressured to contribute money for the legal battle of O'Keefe and Gus against Pennsylvania authorities, was questioned concerning his whereabouts on January 17th, 1950, and was unable to provide any specific account of where he had been. Not real. Come on, buddy. Buddy? He, he was later convicted and sentenced to nine months for income tax evasion. Other members of the group came under suspicion, but there was not enough evidence for an indictment, so law enforcement kept pressure on them, but they couldn't really do anything else. They got jazz. They ain't gonna get us. <laughs> yeah. All right. On the night of January 17th, 1952, exactly two years after the crime occurred, the FBI's Boston office received an anonymous telephone call from an individual who claimed he was sending a letter identifying the Brinks robbers. Oh, well. Information received from this individual linked nine well-known hoodlums with the crime. (laughs) Hoodlums. The FBI website really likes calling people hoodlums. I don't know if So you just adopted it? Yeah. <laughs> but I just, I'm like, is there, is that like an official term? I, I wonder. I think of it as like a Midwest middle class thing of like, get off my lawn, you hoodlums. Maybe it's like a classification in their, in their brains of like, <laughs> all right, so there are you're minor. You're not a suspect, but you're a hoodlum. Yeah, there are hoodlums, minor offenders. It's a major, diagram. yeah, major <laughs> offenders. Like uh, serial killers are all the way over there. They got their own law. They they are nowhere close to what would be referred to as a hoodlum. <laughs> but yes, nine nine. This letter from this person linked nine well known hoodlums with the crime. After careful investigation, the FBI eliminated eight of the suspects. Whoa! But the ninth man had been a principal suspect for a long period of the case, and he was later arrested as part of the robbery gang. Uh-oh. The FBI didn't say which one it was, but... That's not helpful. So this anonymous person... <laughs> I don't think they really knew anything. I think they just knew enough about the criminal... Like, it was, it was some... It was Persephone's little brother who heard through the wall Big P talking to whoever. And so he knew enough of the names that he's like, I'm just going to write these down. And then he got lucky because, like, one of them was actually involved. 
That I, I believe that. I completely you know? believe that. All right. And now our next chapter. Betrayal. All right, no real I'm excited. Either. I'm sorry. I got all like I got really excited in my head, and I was like, "Okay, she's gonna keep talking." I get betrayal. Yeah! <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> After O'Keefe was released from prison in Pennsylvania, he was taken to stand trial for another burglary and parole violations, but he was released on bail of seventeen thousand dollars. O'Keefe later claimed that he had never seen his portion of the robbery loot after he gave it to Moffy for safekeeping. Oh, you don't give your money to someone else for safekeeping, especially if you just stole it. Like, what makes you... What? Never mind. Wow. Just... He... Uh, apparently, he, like, inherently trusted this guy. Like, very much. Okay. Like, really solidly. And Moffy was like... You had all these legal bills. That's where all the money went. But then O'Keefe was like, mm. Apparently, in need of money, O'Keefe kidnapped Vincent Costa yeah. and demanded his part of the loot for ransom. So, kidnapping another member of the team and being like, well, you still have your money. That's not... Okay. Pino, so kind of our, our case yeah. man, uh, Pino paid a small ransom, but then... Decided to try and kill O'Keefe. Ooh! <laughs> this is... I'm really enjoying the turns this is taking. After a couple of attempts, he hired... I did, a, did it again. Underworld Hitman. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Who would that be? Karen. With a C. It looks like... Yes, okay. Yeah, For Karen. a second, I thought you meant, like, My A mom. Karen. No, no, no. Not <laughs> no. your mother. A Karen. <laughs> I'd like to speak with the manager. She says, two Hades <laughs> With a gun. <laughs> She's like, would you like to speak to the manager? And the gun, like, has the, the manager <laughs> engraved on it. Like the oh Baz Luhrmann, Romeo and Juliet. This is, like, Blade. Like, I really... Oh, I really like that idea. <laughs> If we were better at execution, we could make an excellent TikTok series and blow um, up. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember what we were saying when we got interrupted. <laughs> but um, he decides he's going to try and kill O'Keefe. After a couple of failed attempts, Pino hires... Oh, this is when we got distracted. Underworld. <laughs> he hires Underworld Hitman... Elmer Trigger Burke. I'm sorry. Elmer? Well, that's why he goes by Trigger. <laughs> Just like Adolf went after with my jazz. I'm really enjoying these nicknames. Right? I, like, but truly. I love that Elmer's is like very self-explanatory. Yeah, you have, there is nothing ambiguous about that. Right? Like, <laughs> what would you... Please write into the pod. Based on your occupation, what would your very straightforward nickname be? Clicker. (laughs) Shannon. Market. (laughs) Market. (laughs) Market. Market. Oh, God. The best in market. The best in market. Uh, Burke. Trigger. Trigger. We can call him Trigger. Trigger. Traveled to Boston and shot O'Keefe, seriously wounding him 
But failed to kill him. Dude, you had one, you literally had one you job. You had one job. And your name is it's in your name. Trigger. I mean, he just got to pull the trigger. He didn't say. Oh, that's his true. His name isn't Bullseye. Or. Uh, I bet you that's what he came back with. He's like, hey. He came to Pino and was like, hey, my. You should have talked to my cousin, Bullseye. That ain't my name. That's, uh, that's his name. Not to be confused. That's with not my guy. name. Uh-uh. That's not my name. Uh, I don't know where my accent's going. Like, but I don't know. I don't know. Not, no. Nat. Stop. <laughs> stop. Stop. <laughs> S-T-A-H-P. Stop. <laughs> the FBI approached Joseph Spex O'Keefe, man of many lives, who could not be killed. They approached him in the hospital. And on January 6th, 1956, he decided to talk. <gasps> he cracked! Making him the downfall of the so-called perfect crime. And it's reported that he said, All right, what do you want to know? Ooh, that's a, be- that's a wonderful beginning line. His confession, before I get there... Yes, he cracked, but also it makes sense to me because these guys didn't help him when he was in prison, and now they're trying to kill him. And they spent his money. So yeah. I, he has every reason like, to. You know what? I ha- This is not getting me anywhere, obviously. Screw you, buddy. 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 His confession also revealed that a plan had been considered all the way back in 1947. Whoa. To rob the Brinks building when it was located on Federal Street. This plot involved many of his eventual co-conspirators, but was never fully crystallized. Hmm. So, it took them two years to do this heist. Yeah. But they had already been kind of thinking about it before they moved locations. The Brinks. Again, a very long con. There you go. According to O'Keefe, on January 18th, the day after the robbery, the gang members attempted to identify incriminating items, making an extensive effort to detect pencil markings and other notations on the currency, which the criminals thought might be traceable. They even feared that new bills might be linked with the crime, so McGinnis suggested a process for aging the new money in a hurry. To, like, make it look older. Okay. On January 12th, just five days before the statute of limitations was to run out, the FBI arrested Baker, Costa, Gagan, Maffey, McGinnis, and Pino. Two members of the gang, Thomas Sandy Richardson and James Faraday, managed to elude authorities and were placed on the FBI's Top 10 most wanted list. Right row. The two men were apprehended at 87 Coleman Street in Dorchester, Massachusetts on May 16th of that year. And this is another little fact that was not explained, but I love it. The hideout was also found to contain more than $5,000 in coins. (laughs) So many coins. I wonder who had to count all of those. Right? Well, and it didn't say if it was 
from the robbery or if just... It just... <laughs> coins. They just had a crap ton the of coins. The opposite of liquidating your assets. Turning <laughs> it all into coins. Turning it into metal. When you need to turn your wealth into a weapon, you like put them all in tube socks and just like <laughs> ground hitting people. O'Keefe pleaded guilty during his confession. Yeah. Um, and Gus died in, on January 9th in prison. Due to an untreated brain tumor and acute cerebral edema. Oh, that's kind of sad. Which, because I have to get it into t- an episode. I'm waiting. Cerebral edema is often what kills people on Mount Everest. Yep, okay. there we go. Uh, and Banfield- I knew it was coming, y'all. <laughs> Banfield was already dead. They didn't say why, but uh, they couldn't uh, arrest him because he was dead. <laughs> Maybe Trigger got to him, too. No, Bullseye got to him. Bullseye. <laughs> Another big break happened on June 3rd, 1956, when a Boston man named Jordan Perry. Uh, Perry? Perry? He doesn't listen to this podcast. Thanks for the futon, Jeff. Uh, Jordan Perry was caught trying to spend musty, worn-out bills in Baltimore. Musty. Mm Mm-hmm. And it was actually because he was at, like, an arcade sort of location, and the owner of that called in that he had just been passed a counterfeit bill. So that's oh. what they got. But then the FBI agents traced a lot of the bills that he had on him back to the Brinks heist and found that this man, Perry, had $4,635 of the loot. Wow, that is a good chunk. I mean. Considering that O'Keefe had none. Out of 2.8 million. Oh, that's fair. I forgot how big it was. (laughs) And that was in, you know, 1950 money. Uh, Perry told police that a man called John Fats. Oh, gosh. Another one. Buccelli? Yeah. Buccelli? Buccelli. Buccelli. Had offered to pay him $5,000 if he could pass off. 30000 of the stolen cash. Okay, so where does Fats fit in? Literally don't know. But, you know, they're trying to kind of send it the opposite of a multi-level marketing thing. They're like, <laughs> concentrated, the money's concentrated. They're trying to give the money further down the... Yeah, the down spread it out. So that it's less noticeable. This led the authorities to Buccelli's office at 617 Tremont Street in Boston's South End where they discovered a picnic cooler hidden behind a fake wall. The cooler was filled with more than $57,700 in cash. Wow. 51906 of which came from the Brinks robbery, according to the FBI. Dang. So that's why they, they, the money was like musty and had like some insects, like, so they were like, it's been, it's, just- been, it's gotten wet. At some point, and it's, like, musty, so, like, where were you trying to keep it? Yeah. Did you try to bury it? Did, yeah. And that made it hard to determine how much of the money there was, because it was just kind of disintegrating some of the bills. Oh, yeah. When they were trying to examine them. O'Keefe did not know where the gang members had hidden their shares of the loot, or where they had disposed of the money, if, in fact, they had disposed of their shares. The other gang members would not talk. (laughs) There you go. A trial for the men began on August 6th of 1956. 
More than 100 persons took the stand as witnesses for the prosecution and the defense during September of that year. The most important of these, Spex O'Keefe, carefully recited the details of the crime, clearly spelling out the role played by each of the eight defendants. At 10.25 p.m., which I'm like, y'all keeping these people late. On October 5th, 1956, the jury retired to weigh the evidence. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a very late day. Three and a half hours later. Oh, so what? 1.30 (laughs) a.m.? Yeah. The verdict had been reached. The men were all found guilty. Duh. The eight men were sentenced by Judge Forte. (laughs) I hope he's loud. But On October 9th, Pino, Costa, Moffey, Gagan, Faraday, Richardson, and Baker received life sentences for robbery, two-year sentences for conspiracy to steal, and and sentences of eight to ten years for breaking and entering at night. Oh, that's very specific. Is it a different... Sentence for breaking and entering in the day? <laughs> I don't. That is very specific. They have not covered this on how to get away with murder. <laughs> I'm only an L3, you guys. I am a surgeon, but I'm only an L3. Mm-hmm. McGinnis, who had not been at the scene on the night of the robbery, received a life sentence on each of eight indictments that charged him with being an accessory before the fact in connection with the Brinks robbery. In addition, McGinnis received other sentences of two years, two and two and one half to three years, and eight to ten years. So he somehow got more things yeah. than anyway. All of the men were paroled by 1971. Oh. Except for McGinnis, who died in prison. Aww. O'Keefe received four years and were, was released in 1960. So because he... He's, he talked. He, he Yes. Yeah. So they were like, all right, you can get out. Now you may be wondering, Shannon, this is all fun and interesting, but why are you telling it here on our mystery podcast? I mean, I was just going to be like, yes, great. We have some answers, <laughs> finally. Well, Emma... Only 58000 of the $2.8 million were ever recovered. That is a big chunk of money missing. Yes. So, unfortunately, our theories section is pretty skinny. Well, because like, it feels unlike like there's... John Fats Buccelli. <laughs> we don't keep it all in a, in a wall. How funny would it would it be if Fats was actually like a very skinny man? <laughs> I really like that. I like I love when when in like uh, movies or TV shows they're like tiny and it's like this big gigantic like sissy sissy. <laughs> we got one. We got one. Um. All right, but we do have. It's basically like one theory that uh, anyway. Well, here we go. Stephanie Soro, who wrote a book. Which I think she was getting paid by the number of words in the title. Because here we go. The book is called The Crime of the Century, colon, How the Brinks Robbers Stole Millions and the Hearts of Boston. 
Oh, Sounds more like an academic paper. It does. But she suggests that, quote, the rest of the money might be buried somewhere, but all indications are that the robbers spent the money little by little, often in investments that went bust or on gambling and boozing. I mean, that I would believe. Right. And it's smart because, like we talked about with the the Gardner Museum, it was too hot to actually, like, do anything. Do anything with, yeah. So you couldn't go and, like, buy a boat yeah. all at once. Unless you were, you know, unless you were buying a boat from someone who, like, didn't care where the money came from. Yeah. Kind of thing. But then people would notice that you had a big flashy expense in your life. Yeah. At least one suspect bought a piece of land. The Associated Press reported that when Vincent James Costa was going through a divorce in 1988, he told the judge he bought land for $1,800 on November 10th, 1950, and built a house on it. Costa also told the judge that his share of the Brinks loot amounted to be about $100,000, but his son cheated him out of most of it. Okay, wait a minute. (laughs) Several sources state with no sort of evidence for me to cite (laughs) but several sources state that the rest of the money is fabled to be hidden in the hills north of grand rapids minnesota well what i don't know i don't know i don't know that was on the fbi website no oh it was uh, in several other sources and one of the sources was citing history, like the History Channel. So I was like, great, I'll go there. A reputable source. It, they didn't list any sources, so. Rude. And Emma, as is often the case here on La Pod, we will never truly know where the money went as the last survivor, Moffy. Oh, Jazz. I don't remember. But he died at 77 years old in 1988. Oh. At least four movies were based or partially based on the Great Brinks robbery. You can go look them up. I didn't write them down. Nowadays, you can visit the site of the famous robbery. A parking garage uh, with the Boston Street address of 600 Commercial Street. (laughs) So you can go check it out. (laughs) It's a parking garage. Oh, no. Yep. The heist remained the largest cash heist in U.S. history until 1984, which is what one of the the sources said, but they didn't tell me what unseated it. So I did a little Googling, and I think that it was unseated by the Geronimo bank robbery in Geronimo, Oklahoma, which resulted in the deaths of three bank employees and one customer. Aww. Which is sad. But also leads me to the point of, that's one of the things people point to when they called this the perfect crime. Because nobody died. Yeah. So, like, nobody really got hurt. Except for big companies. Which, depending how you feel, (laughs) may not be a big deal. And it took them so long to... Like, if O'Keefe hadn't ever confessed... Yeah. They could have been suspicious, but they didn't have any evidence. Yeah. Well, if Pino hadn't tried to... Kill him. Have him killed, like... Don't kill your friends. But anyway, uh... 
More than $1,150,000 of the cash remains missing to this day. Dun 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 We don't have the rights. Please keep that in. I'm sorry. Amazing. But yeah, that's that's all I got for you. Very a little lighter. That was great. Very well done. No dead or missing children. Nope, and even the attempted murder didn't happen. Like, it was attempted only. Exactly. Yeah, the only person that died was because of a brain tumor. Which was sad, but but natural causes. Not malicious. Yeah. That was a lot of fun. Now I really want to watch Ocean's Eleven. Right? Seriously. I don't know where they're all streaming. I don't know either. Maybe HBO? Oh. I don't have that on my computer. Or on my TV. Thank you so much for this. Oh, you're welcome. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. Also, I really like jazz. Jazz. <laughs> Do you think he wandered around like with jazz hands and they had to like get him to stop? No, he just like... Shut up, jazz. Yeah. Quiet feet. He's like, oh, a soft shoe? <laughs> so that was good. That was good. That was thank good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. But yeah, I had never heard of that. I hadn't either. Ever. And it was one of the most notorious crimes in American history, apparently. I honestly think it got, like, overshadowed by things like D.B. Cooper and... Maybe. Like... D.B. Cooper isn't in that magazine. Oh. That's surprising to me. Yeah. There were there was a bunch of stuff in there that I had never heard of before. Hmm. Yeah. Including... I laughed that you were like, spies? We haven't done spies in a while, because I almost did a spy one. Ooh! Well, I'm glad I brought up Ocean's Stay Eleven. Stay tuned. I'm very proud of myself. Well done. Thank you. I will say, mm. it was a fun little surprise. Uh, I was listening to a playlist that's like all Ocean's 11, 12, 13 soundtracks and like songs from them. And several of the uh, soundtrack, you know, usually soundtracks are just the music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> These have like little snippets of like, so I was like, George Clooney. <laughs> oh my god! Even like talking, being like, "So did you get it?" Like da 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 da. Like and I was like, "This is like a little mini movie." Like if, if if you've watched the movie enough times, when you listen to the music, yeah, yeah, yeah. you can just like visualize what's happening. It's like listening. You know how you can listen to Hamilton and know what's going on. Oh yeah, it's a bit like that. I like it. It's exciting. Uh, I'm so excited. Because we're going to see Hamilton. Oh, that's right. We're going to go see <laughs> Hamilton in Colorado. Whoop, whoop. Happy birthday to me. Yeah. In March. Not yet, you guys. We get to see Mama Karen. Whoop, whoop. That'll be fun. It'll Can't be wait. cold. And we'll be in the Denver airport. Yep. Get ready for all those pictures. Behind the scenes content. Yeah. Um, yeah, hopefully I'll, we'll have more time to actually... Because when I was there for Mother's Day, I wanted to take pictures of stuff, but most of the stuff, like the gargoyles or the murals or the time capsule, are all before you go through security. Yeah. And I was nervous that I wouldn't have enough time. So this time we still have to figure out our flights and stuff, but we should just be like, we have like an 11 a.m. flight. We get, we get there at the like airport 8. at like 830. <laughs> Uh, I'm but, good at that. But I'm yeah, fine being early. Um, I just, you know, I love a heist. I do. A national I do treasure. Uh, a, an Oceans movie. 
Uh, the Six of Crows books by Lee, Lee Bardugo. I still need to read those. But yeah, you gotta read the first trilogy for. I mean, you don't have to, but I think you should. I mean, I believe you. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna argue with that. That's for our spinoff podcast, former bookseller talk, <laughs> national treasure talk, former bookseller talk, all of our albums that we haven't put out yet. Uh, you know, we promise a lot. We we overpromise and severely underdeliver, <laughs> much like the U.S. Postal Service at the moment. Be nice to your people. Also, mail your holiday gifts early. Yeah, if you want them. But also, here's the thing. Mm. Yes, it's nice to have stuff to open on a holiday, mm-hmm. but also you can open a card, print out a little picture of the thing you... That's true. You know if you I mean? know it's not going to get there in time. Like, it's fine. Yeah. I'm really happy I'm not working retail this holiday season. I'm very happy for you. Bam, bam, bam. And I didn't even have to rob a bank. Nope. And neither did I. <laughs> Yay! Yay! five. All right, friends. Well, those were some reminders about um, supply lines and not robbing banks, but here's one more reminder. Remember, this podcast doesn't exist. I like the scream whisper. That was good. I'm projecting. I know, but I liked it. Okay, bye. Like my therapist says, I'm projecting. (laughs)